are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Hi, Jamie Howison here. Just a quick note before this sermon podcast. I'm finding it really helpful to have a guest preacher every four or six weeks, often somebody drawn from our own congregation gives me a chance to receive the preached word, which is important. And it gives others the opportunity to explore some ideas, the craft of preaching. And so for this one, Beth Downey Sawatsky preached on Trinity Sunday. This is the second time Beth has preached. And if you go to the show notes, we will link you back to a sermon she preached on the Sermon on the Plain back in February. This is Beth. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. When Jamie invited me to preach some week this summer, he sent me the full list of lectionary readings and dates so that I could take my pick. And I did. I picked passages that I was excited about. But I must admit to you that when I sat down to work on this sermon and looked over the scriptures, which I had handpicked, It was like I had never seen them in my life. I came up strangely blank, um, which I think goes chiefly to show that ancient as they may be, the scriptures really are new every day. And I think it ended up being a good thing. Sometimes the two lectionary readings for a Sunday have obvious relationship and, and drawing them into discussion comes easily. Sometimes, Maybe there's an avenue of connection to explore, but the the beckoning of one passage is so strong that it's it's a no-brainer. And after all, there's always next time for the one that you don't pick. In meditating on our passages for today, I felt at first that there was very little connection worth emphasizing between the two. And I was annoyed with the psalm for being so beautiful and so immediately resonant. Look at the vastness of your creation, O Lord. It's incomprehensible mysteries, even to outermost space. What are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them. And yet, so problematic. You have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion, fraught word, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet. I just don't know about that. Is it a conventional expression of the Genesis narrative concerning the relationship between human beings and God's other creatures? Yes. Does it likely reflect Israel's spiritual worldview at the time the psalm was written? Yes. Today, in the age of climate change, does it absolutely jar my preserves? Also, yes. The psalm honestly strikes me as one of those passages that we ought now to read with extreme caution. I think we ought to teach it meticulously, with as much trepidation and as many caveats and footnotes and cross-references as we now teach passages like those in Ephesians 5 and 6. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, etc., Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and trembling, etc. Obviously, 
We do not read these passages uncritically. Obviously, we don't read them or preach them or teach them the way they often have been in the past, or at least we darn well shouldn't, as justifications for the abuse of power over other of God's sacred creatures. I don't think we should teach Psalm 8 less than critically either. Nor, I must stress, is that an especially new idea particular to myself. But in order to have brought you a fulsome, well-researched, eco-critical homily, replete with Gerard Manley Hopkins and St. Francis and William Faulkner and everyone else who should be in there, it would have demanded giving that passage my whole focus for this week. And I didn't really want to do that, because our gospel reading for this week was sort of calling to me in this very direct and unnerving way. But in the end, I hope my reflections on the two passages may have something to say to one another after all. Today's gospel reading, this classic Pentecost passage, has Jesus laying out systematically to his disciples that the advocate, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, that will soon come to dwell with them as Jesus had, This spirit is as directly a part of and an expression of Jesus as Jesus was an expression of God the Father. It's good that I'm going away, he says to them, because if I stayed, this limited embodiment of who God is would be all you could have. But if I go, and he's alluding to his coming death, but also to his resurrection, if I go, then you will be able to experience a new manifestation of the always vaster Yahweh. I am that I am, or I will be as I will be. The advocate will glorify me because it is from me that they will receive what they will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I say the Spirit will receive from me what they will make known to you. Exactly as much as I am one with the Father, Jesus says, the Spirit is one with the Father and with me. We are all expressions of one another, faces of the core. At the beginning of his gospel, John writes of this this co-equal relationship, this relationship of a, a single identity expressed in multiple persons using a great deal of metaphor. And I'm not sure there is another way to talk about the Trinity, besides metaphor. Lord knows there are more and less convincing ones out there. The best one I ever heard was that the Trinity is like water, which can express itself as liquid rain, or as snow, or as a vapor, but it's always water. In John's case, he calls Jesus the Word of God, present with the Father from the beginning of time, One interpretation of the original Greek would be that John says the word, or or Jesus, was with God in the beginning in the chest cavity of the Father. In other words, Jesus is the heartbeat, the heart speak of God. And then John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. At the start of everything, John is going to some lengths to lay out the deeply mystical relationship of oneness 
that Jesus and Yahweh, or God the Father, or God the Mother, if you like, share. That oneness is critical to the whole project of what he has to say. And here, when he arrives at today's reading, near the end of Jesus' time on earth, he picks up that theme, giving meticulous attention to Jesus' words as he explains how that relationship of oneness extends to include the new expression of God's self that the disciples are soon to experience in the Holy Spirit. Sermons about the Holy Spirit tend, in my experience, to be a bit telling about the person who gives them. Because the whole subject is sort of inescapably confessional, isn't it? It's entirely possible to discourse on Jesus or or even the Old Testament figure of Yahweh in the context, the tidy little context, of the stories we read about them without quite giving away one's innermost personal beliefs. You can relate what the text teaches. You can even relate personal anecdotes as illustration without ever really testifying in a naked way about how present or alive Jesus is in your day-to-day life right now. What Yahweh means to you, how you experience God's self. Not so about the Holy Spirit. In my limited experience, you pretty much can't talk about that personage of God without giving away in some measure where you stand and what you don't know. Was the Holy Spirit, like Jesus of Nazareth, kind of a one-time special expression of God's self, active during the days of the early church, but now more or less dissipated? Is Holy Spirit just another name for the human conscience? Is it the force responsible for miracles, natural disasters, ESP? I had a phone call this week with a very old friend of mine, the first in a long while, in which he told me that outside of our friendship, he wasn't sure he had ever experienced unconditional love that on the whole, unconditional love was a subject with which he felt ill-acquainted and that it seemed to him something like a miracle or a superpower, an exceptional occurrence. And that conversation really threw me. It's not so much that I was surprised to hear him say it, I've known him some time, but it hit me like a ton of bricks. Because you see, I grew up outrageously privileged in many ways, but in this way most of all. I grew up in the teaching and the example, the consistent, vivid example from two parents, two of them, that all true love is unconditional, that God is love, pure, total, 1 Corinthians 13, unconquerable, always wins, unconditional love. And that that divine love is the life force of everything in the cosmos. It's the law that makes our cells work and spins the stars around and that can and will set every broken thing right somehow in the end. I grew up being taught that the pursuit 
of an ever truer understanding and practice of unconditional love was the object of earthly life. Not to mention the straightest way to becoming most holy ourselves. It's through loving as God loves that we discover who and what we really are. That's what I was taught. Now, growing up, I frequently heard it tossed around like a given that to become a parent is by default to feel and understand and be capable of unconditional love. I think I could say I even heard it suggested one way or another that parental love is the most unconditional love human beings can experience, though there were usually some caveats about as long as it's biological parenthood. Wait till you have your own, people always say. Then you'll understand. Anyway, while I think I do understand why these things are said or implied, I'm old enough now to know that they're simply not true. Isaiah 49:15 said many thousands of years ago, can a mother forget the babe at her breast or have no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. That I is, of course, the voice of Yahweh. As I read it, as I have experienced it, through the people who have loved me, and through a variety of other sorts of events, the Holy Spirit is the mystical, living, active suffusion, the indwelling throughout all creation of everything Jesus embodied, God's love, God's justice, God's creativity. The Holy Spirit, exclusively, is the absolute source and spark of unconditional love. So that as 1 John says, anyone who loves knows God and is in God, but whoever does not love does not know God. I might suggest whoever does not love does not yet or does not in this moment know God. To experience the Holy Spirit, that source and spark of unconditional love, it can be transcendent, the kind of thing that flattens you or lifts you almost out of your skin or or submerges you for a time in unutterable encounter. But it can also be so earthy, quiet, gentle, infused in moments or interactions so small and so normal, they're almost luminescent in their ordinariness. From the vantage point I have, such it as it is, at 28 years old, I do think, perhaps, that unconditional love here in this world is rarer than I had previously realized. Rare and terrible and even more important than any of us can ever imagine. And perhaps, as my friend suggested, it is supernatural. But I contend still that at the same time, it is fundamentally natural. Like everything else, I suppose the truth is replete with paradox. Unconditional love is a grace, not something we do, at least never at first, only something we submit to, 
something we receive and then transmit to others. It is grueling and effortless at the same time, a daily discipline, but also not even a choice. To learn it is to feel and to find our way home, within ourselves, within the land, with each other, human and non-human creatures, and perhaps most ultimately in death. I don't know for sure, but Pentecost makes me think. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.